Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news and analysis podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor based in our newsroom here in central Moscow. This week on the program, for years, North Korean laborers in Russia have worked on construction sites and in clothing factories. But now, to adhere to UN sanctions, the Kremlin is starting to kick them out. The biggest impact for Russia has been sanctions that prevent North Korea from exporting its labor. Basically, you know, it's it's a very poor country. One of the few things that it can it can produce is to send its workers abroad so they can earn foreign currency and, and bring it back. We'll be joined in the studio by Anatoly Kurmanev of the Wall Street Journal to talk about how Russian businesses are finding innovative ways of skirting the sanctions. And later... It's been called Russia's version of Big Brother or The Truman Show. A film project due for release later this year followed 400 people over three years in a set that replicated life in the Soviet Union down to the minute details. What it becomes is sort of a study of power. How do you put a group of people together and control them? And what if you loosen the control here? And what if you apply pressure here? What happens? What happens if you change the power structure? We'll speak with producer-director Albina Kovalyova, who worked on the project about why it has left her and others close to it troubled. First up, according to government figures from October, there were some 13,000 North Korean laborers in Russia. But that number is dwindling as Russia expels the workers to adhere to UN sanctions, barring countries from doing business with North Korea. And not everyone here is happy about it. Joining us in the studio is Anatoly Kurmanayev, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who recently traveled to the Far East to speak to Russian businesses about how they're adapting to the sanctions and what others are doing to circumvent them. Anatoly, thanks very much for taking the time to be in the studio with us today. Thanks very much for having me. First of all, tell us the backstory on these UN sanctions. When were they introduced and why? What are Russia's obligations? Well, the United Nations has been gradually ramping up sanctions on, on North Korea for uh, for about a decade to, to try to prevent it from acquiring uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and that's uh, one of a few sort of global issues where uh, Russia sees uh, broadly eye to eye the West because it's not in anyone's interest uh, for uh, an unstable uh, nuclear North Korea. You know, in Russia, it's, it, has, it shares a border, it's on its doorstep, it's uh, destabilized the whole region. So in general, Russia has... Um, cooperated uh, with the West uh, on the sanctions. Um, as I said, they've been introduced gradually, but the, the real, the hard stuff, they really began to bite starting from 2017. Mm. Um, and uh, that was quite sort of a watershed moment because we saw Russia uh, basically join the West to to really punish North Korea, to really cut off its its, its economic lines and, and, and trying to strangle its economy. Um, and that was done on, basically on request of China. China has asked Russia to, to cooperate and, and join it in, in the Security Council, where, of course, everyone needs to say yes uh, for sanctions to take place. Uh, and Russia went along. So uh, ever since, it's been sort of um, 
I suppose, party to sanctions, but not a particularly enthusiastic one. And part of Russia's obligations under these sanctions is that it doesn't employ North North Koreans. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. And and as of as of October last year, there were around thirteen thousand in the country. Can you tell us what kind of work they're doing here and how long they've been working here? But there's a, there's a whole range of of uh, sort of hard hitting sanctions. They uh, no Russia can't uh, export uh, coal uh, to North Korea or can't buy North Korean coal as well. There's limits on, on trade and all products. The stuff that's been kind of their breadline. Um, but probably the, the, the biggest impact for Russia has been uh, a, a sanctions that prevents North Korea from exporting its labor. Basically, you know, it's it's a very poor country. One of the few things that it can it can produce is to send its workers abroad so they can earn foreign currency and, and bring it back. Uh, and in, in Russia's Far East, you know, North Korean workers, they have been a really important uh, source of manpower. I, as, as, as you know, it's, there's a big labor shortages there. Um, population continues to to fall. Uh, so these North Korean workers have played a really important part in the, most of all in the construction industry. But more, more than anything, uh, they have the people that uh, have been building houses, trying to sort of uh, jumpstart the, the economy that's uh, um, in, in cities throughout the Far East. We think of Russia as typically having a, a good relationship with, with North North Korea. We can see their embassies and consulates in, in Russian cities. Russia has been accused of trading uh, with North with North Korea despite these UN sanctions. So why is now Russia deciding to, to, to play by the rules, so to speak, whenever it comes to to comes whenever it comes to these these workers? Well, it's 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 a good question. As I said, Russia sort of went along uh, because of China's request, but it doesn't really have its heart in it. Uh, um, but uh, Russia is also a very bureaucratic country. So, so once the, the sanctions have been passed and, and Russia has signed them, uh, then it just slowly makes its way down Russia's bureaucratic system, and no one really, um, no one really wants to do something that's uh, that's not in the book. You know, Russia is a very, uh, you know, they like things to do by by the book. You know, so um, uh, permits for workers have been gradually cut. Uh, you know, uh, visas have been rejected. So the sanctions are really beginning to to bite uh, on the local level, even though and in, at the Kremlin there hasn't really been any any will to to you know in, inform the regions about the sanctions or even sign them into local law. Uh, but uh, you know just the bureaucratic inertia is gradually um, taking effect. On the ground, let's let's have a look at what this actually looks like. How are Russian businessmen being impacted, Russian businesses being impacted, and how are we seeing them try to to circumvent these penalties? Well, it's a, it's a big, big issue in for businesses in the Far East. Uh, as I said, it's really hard to find workers uh, where uh, young people leave. Um, so losing that uh, North Korean labor uh, has 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 impacted the construction industry very seriously. There, these are also like very high quality workers. You know, they're not particularly skilled, but they work really hard. They don't drink. They don't take time off. You know, they they just they just work nonstop. You know, uh, some of it is just the kind of Asian work ethics. Some of it, of course, the you know the totalitarian nature of of the regime where they come from. Um, so uh, businesses have been trying to adapt in in, in various ways. Uh, some have uh, let go of their workers officially, so they kind of just roaming on the side without formal employment, but still still kind of working in the in the grey economy before their visas run out. They've been they've been trying to sort of postpone deporting them until the last last possible day. Uh, and you know, there's some some <laughs> more interesting. Interesting ways of doing it is, is trying to take uh, the workers where United Nations 
Russians doesn't exist. Like, for example, you know, Abkhazia, sort of enclaves, uh, vets are not recognized by the United Nations. So therefore, you know, its, its resolutions don't technically apply there. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of different strategies. Tell us a little bit more about the business of uh, Yuri, uh, is it? Diakov. Diakov. Well, it's, it's an interesting businessman in, in, in Sahalin uh, who has a whole range of businesses, you know, uh, uh, garbage disposal trucks, construction, uh, timber, and he's, he's, he's worked with North Koreans for, for decades. Uh, he has, uh, as, as many people in the Far East, he has a personal connection to, to North Korea. Uh, his father fought in a, in a Korean war, um, and he's, uh, he's basically trying to do everything he can to, to try to keep uh, some of his workers employed. Of course, some of it is, is pure economics. You know, he needs the cheap labor to keep his businesses competitive. But, um, but you know, you, you, you do sense that there's a human element to it as well. You know, people understand that life in North Korea is very, very hard, that the, these, these workers, you know, they are really lucky. You know, they get uh, some foreign income coming for, for, to their families. It's a, re- it's a lifeline to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in North Korea. And, and just to, to kick them out like that uh, is, is, is been quite painful for a lot of people in, in the Far East. Right. And based on some of the conversations you were having with your with your colleagues and with the Russian business community in the Far East, this appears to be quite an emotional issue. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what the what this sense of loyalty towards these workers is 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 based on? Well what what I didn't realize and, and presumably most people in the West and I would even say most people in Russia don't realize just the, the connection between Korea uh, and and what is now called the, the Far East. Uh, uh, they have um, been really close together for for, for for centuries. In fact, you know, in the, in the early days of 20th century, Korean immigrants made up a third of, of all the population in you know in the Imperial Far East uh, at the time. Uh, and these ties strengthened after the Korean War. So North Korea they actually have been exporting labor to to the Soviet Union since since 1940s. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Russians fought in the Korean War. Uh, in in the, you know Korea, ethnic Koreans are still a significant uh, ethnic group in a, in in that part of the country, and they you know they are you know they are very close knit you know they well established they are pretty powerful in in in, in the business circles uh, and and they uh, you know they see Korea as a united nation you know it's just the Korean War you know the that's just the accident of history that separated uh, basically one people and uh, helping uh, North Koreans employing them you know trying to uh, trying to maintain economic ties is a way for them to to basically to to help their kin um you know it's a humanitarian aspect to it and, and also do their little bit for unification of peninsula their main goal is you know their, their long-term dream you know so to speak is is to see korea united again so tell me this you you've you've talked about how the how the russian government is ostensibly uh, beginning to really implement these sanctions in a way that is impacting uh, russian business the russian business community on the ground in the far east how do you see this playing out is it inevitable that that ultimately these 13,000 north korean workers are going to have to leave is is that the end game well uh, and, and keep in mind 13,000 that's just that's just after the sanctions already they used to be up to 30,000 in fact north koreans were the second biggest source of foreign labor none Ex-Soviet Union labor in in Russia after after China, you know, it was a really big chunk of, uh, well, significant chunk of of a labor force. Uh, we, we, everyone's only hope is basically that Trump's meeting that with Kim Jong Un will somehow somehow ease the tension, somehow will create uh, conditions where the sanctions will be uh, will will be rolled back. Everyone just waiting out and and just trying to drag their feet as much as possible to the last day without implementing just in that hope that. Uh, 
this year will be a year of de-escalation this year that some deal will be reached between Trump and, and North Korean leadership that will uh, that will basically make this all sound seem like a bad dream in retrospect. Anatoly, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio. Thanks, Jonathan. It's a film made from 700 hours of raw footage. It's an art project of unheard proportions. Dao, directed by Ilya Khrazhanovsky, set out to be a biopic of the Soviet physicist Lev Landau and a denunciation of Soviet totalitarianism. The project, which is being rolled out this year, saw cameras follow 300 everyday Russians around a set built to replicate life in a Soviet city. In 2009, over 400 people left their everyday lives to go back in time to the Soviet Union. For over two years, they lived and worked at the Secret Research Institute. Even before Dao was premiered in Paris this week, reports of the size and the scale and the ambition of the project had amazed and unsettled. Joining us on the line from London is Albina Kovalyova, who worked on the project at various stages. Albina, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. First of all, it's it's been called it's been called a film. It's been called an art project. As someone who worked on Dao, can you describe exactly what it is? Sure. I mean, I think it might be helpful to differentiate the different stages of it because initially it was an, a film project, or so it was understood to be. There was a script, although that script seemed to be quite closely guarded and was hidden. It was written by uh, the famous Russian author Sorokin, Vladimir Sorokin. Um, But, you know, initially when I started in 2006 as a casting assistant, it was very much like, we're going to make this film, we're going to need to cast some, you know, huge amount of ordinary people in order to make it look authentic. But then, having left in 2007, mm. what I heard in the 10 years that I wasn't working the project, that it is that it morphed into something really beyond uh, a film. It was, uh, they created this set in East Ukraine, in Kharkiv, where people lived, um, ordinary people lived kind of day-to-day lives, scientists, uh, real scientists were there, doing work in labs or research or conferences. And it became more of a kind of observation of life in a, set in a very unusual setting in a kind of semi-recreation of the Soviet Union, but also with a very kind of artistic taste take on it. It wasn't a complete replica of the Soviet Union. And although they did go through the times, they, they would change certain uh, power dynamics and stylistic things, you know, as you went from 1938 to 1968, which is when it ended. And all of this over the course of uh, two years. So it was, uh, this institute was destroyed in 2011. But then afterwards, you see, since uh, 2012 in post-production, what you kind of learn when you when you work on it and not, especially now when you encounter this project is that to think of it as a film experience is not helpful at all because even the films that you watch are kind of anti-filmic they're drawn out and boring and they don't necessarily have a plot line uh in in the traditional sense but what i think is more helpful is to see this as a as a kind of recreated world and that is everything from the set that they created in kharkov to the post production um studio to i suppose um even the launch in paris you you mentioned that you worked as a as a casting assistant can you tell us what it was like to to be to be looking for people to to participate uh in in the project what sorts of people were were you looking for 
And did they have a clear sense of what they were signing on to? It was very vague that my assignment was just to go and find people, you know, that would look authentic uh, in the setting of the Soviet Union. So I went through all of Moscow's museums, you know, just taking photographs of, you know, the people who were, who were working there, the staff. I went to loads of university faculties. I went to the circus. I think I even went to an orphanage at some point. And what I was doing is I was mm. just taking photographs of people and trying to persuade them to let me do that because Moscow is quite a hostile place in that sense. You know, especially this is like the early 2000s. People were still really suspicious of the media having, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff going on in the 90s. And uh, even just persuading them to take a photograph and give me their number was hard enough hmm. because they're like what film i don't want to be in the film what are you doing who are you it was all very suspicious to them but so i just you know i worked on this huge database of uh non-acting people just headshot and then the profile of that person and their name and title and uh their hmm. phone number and that was it. And it was, but it was just, you know, kind of never ending. I had to cast so many different institutions and it wasn't clear, you know, how they were going to be cast or what was going to happen to them. I mean, it did seem bizarre. It would make you wonder what sort of, uh, what sort of budget a project like this had. This is, I suppose, the focus of a lot of, um, speculation, you know, where is the money coming from? There is a an official answer, which is apart from the film funds, the various European film funds that have given uh, money towards the project. There is um, an official backer uh, who is a Russian oligarch, Sergei Adonyev. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, there is an official answer for this. The question is, why would he back this um, very unusual and almost never-ending project? In a piece that you wrote for The Telegraph, you said that having been in proximity to this project, you'd been left with a bad feeling. You had been left uh, troubled. Can you explain why that is? Well, I mean, I would go further. I mean, I would say that I was really affected by this in a deep way. Um, I Since I sort of started working on it again in 2016, I spoke to, um, you know, 50, over 50, closer to 60 of the participants. And I did interviews with them from, you know, one to two hours with each of them. And sometimes I do multiple interviews with, um, with some individual and I saw, I don't know how many hours of the footage, but, you know, probably close to 100 hours, maybe not so much, but anyway, a lot. And I saw the different kind of things that were captured, and I did feel like some of it had really crossed the line of what is permissible. Um, it is complicated because, you see, you are, you are told that, well, people who were there were aware of um, that the rules were flexible and that sort of unpleasant things could happen to them, including uh, violence and interrogation and sort of psychological pressure. So they agreed to it. But um, even if that is the case, I think there's still a way that people were um, influenced in that environment that would make them act in ways that they probably would never have um, acted in normal life. And although the project sort of embraces that and says, well, that is the place where they can act in these sort of uh, ways, it's liberating in that sense. I think that in some cases it wasn't liberating, but the opposite. 
I'm not saying that in some cases it wasn't liberated. I think for some people it was a kind of freedom that they could act in in ways there that they, they'd feel um, too restricted to in, in life. But I think in some cases uh, the dark side of people came out or they would become victims of someone else's dark side. And the other side of this whole thing is that, okay, if you've got adults who are consenting to being in this situation, whether, you know, they're subject to great pleasure or abuse or whatever it is, um, you've got the other side of those beings, sentient beings that don't have a choice. And those are animals and those are children. And those are people who might have mental, um, illnesses or instabilities. And I think that given that they, there were these vulnerable groups involved, I think that that is really unfair. Um, and that raises a lot of moral questions to me as a, as a journalist, but also as a human being. There's one scene that, uh, that I described in the article, which is um, the, they have babies in, uh, with Down syndrome who they placed in cages and then they took them out and performed kind of pseudo experiences, uh, experiments on them. The Dow team told me that these babies were treated well and that they had their cares with them. And um, that really it was my sensitivity as a, as a young mother that I w I'm reacting like this to this scene. But of course, these babies were orphans. Uh, and I felt that, you know, who can really speak for orphans in East Ukraine? And even if the orphanage gave a blessing to, to use them in such a way, I felt like it was, uh, I mean, something in there is wrong in my uh, intuitive understanding of things. And so then, then I was really troubled by this and, and, and the way that people kind of um, explained it away and said that it was actually okay. And it was a kind of normalizing of what I thought was really a terrible thing to do. So at this point, um, you know, I had to leave the project because it was just emotionally really difficult to be in this environment and to be sort of convinced that I was wrong about something that I felt really intuitively that I was right about, if that makes sense to you. The project was launched in, in, in Paris. Uh, it's been written about in a slew of Western news organizations. What kind of impact have you seen it have in Russia? Are viewers here likely to appreciate it or see it as a denunciation of Soviet-era rule? Mm, I think, really, it's difficult to, to answer this question. I think there's been a lot of mixed reviews. If we're going to just focus on the Russian um, reaction, then it's interesting uh, as a contrast to the Western uh, reviews, which a lot of which have been pretty critical. I haven't really seen many critical official Russian reviews. They really talk about the kind of artistic... Uh, integrity of this project and how unusual it is to recreate this and the kind of depths of detail. And of course, this is a Russian project originally, but um, yet it seems it will never be shown in Russia because there's so many things in it that would make it, well, impossible to, to uh, be shown in a country with ever-increasing um, censorship laws. Uh, I mean, for once, there is a film about a gay 
love story, which is very graphic. That that would never be shown in Russia, of course. What does it say to you that um, the the Soviet Union is thought of as being a time of extreme censorship, and now that this critique of the of of that era is being is being produced now, it it sounds as if you're saying that it's unlikely that it would be shown in in contemporary Russia. What does that say to you about the the, the media landscape, the cultural landscape here in Russia at the moment? Well, I don't think that the reason that it won't be allowed in Russia has to do with the fact that it's a critique of the Soviet Union. I think the reason it wouldn't be shown in Russia is because it has all of these elements that would probably be deemed illegal in Russia. Um, But I think also to look at it as a critique of the Soviet Union uh, is to simplify it a bit, because it certainly does look deeply into what how certain elements of the Soviet Union worked, like power, for example, because you've got the kind of KGB operators there and how they used, what kind of tactics they used and how people would respond to that and how people might betray their friends. And, um, and of course, visually, it was very much like being in the Soviet Union. But I think it's not really necessarily about that. I think it's about recreating a world. It could be the Soviet Union. It could be another world. It doesn't, I don't think it's, um, it, it matters so much, but I think what, what it becomes is sort of a study of power. How do you put in, put a group of people together and control them? And what if you loosen the control here? And what if you apply pressure here? What happens? What happens if you change the power structure and make it more free? And then what happens if you bring in a new group of people and uh, make a kind of, I suppose, brutal ending? You know, so I think it's really playing with with different uh, groups of um, influence, and it's really a kind of social experiment, I would say, rather than a recreation of the Soviet Union. I think really that's where, you know, a lot of people make um, the mistake of thinking it really is about the Soviet Union, this project. I don't think it is. I think by just influencing people in this way and, and creating this Soviet atmosphere, but then applying things that really had nothing to do with the Soviet Union and, and, and using modern people as well, you just get something completely different. I'll tell you one thing that I found in this project, which is very much linked to present day Russia. And that is this idea that you see nothing really is true. So you can have any sort of version of truth. And that is, of course, the Russian tactic for fake news and, you know, post-truth world. You know, what is uh, what is the truth anyway? Is it not a matter of perspective. So maybe this event happened like this, or maybe this event happened like this. Albina, thanks very much. Thanks for taking the time to to speak with us. All right, take care. Bye. And to finish off, here's our topic of brazen crimes carried out in Russia this week. On Sunday, at the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow, a 32-year-old man walked up to a painting of a mountain in Crimea by Arhip Quinji. Footage from security cameras then shows him straightening the painting on the wall, lifting it from its spot, and simply walking off with it under his arm. Bystanders appear to be so taken aback by the man's confidence that they assume he works for the gallery. But the police were quickly on his trail, and by the following morning, they had a suspect in custody. Denis Chuprikov told police he'd stolen the painting to pay off his debts. There's now an investigation underway to find out whether he was acting alone or if he was under the influence of drugs. 
That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us on next week from Russia with News. Russia with News.